Hey everybody, welcome back to Jersey for The Sopranos Podcast, Episode 3, Frankenstein. In a therapy session, after noticing a picture out in Melfi's lobby, Tony expresses that he thinks it's a special-made psychological picture. Melfi asks him, what does that picture say to you? And his response, it says, hey asshole, we're from Harvard, and what do you think about this spooky, depressing barn and this rotted-out tree? And with that, we are launching into Denial, Anger, and Acceptance. Uh, Episode 3 of The Sopranos, Season 1. It's written by Mark Saracini and directed by Nick Gomez. Uh, two people who I don't think uh, return to The Sopranos very much, so it's kind of a, uh, you know, for, for very long, there's a lot of names that are going to be coming up over and over in the writing and directing department. Um, but a very good episode. Uh, and for me, this episode was the one where I started getting that I really have to keep tuning into this. Um, it didn't quite cement it as an all-time classic in the way that college does yet. But for me, this at the end of this episode, I was like, oh shit, I, I, I'm officially past the point, good or bad, where I can let this show go. I'm Chris. Introduce yourself. Say hello to our listeners. Paul Mancini. Hello, listeners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what listeners? Is that what that? you said? You horse's ass. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm here with Paul Mancini. And uh, do I just say my name? I'm, I'm Jordan Hugh. I, I'm very yeah. nervous now. I, is everything okay? <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm Jordan Hugh. <laughs> uh, if you uh, are joining us now at this point, it means you're still listening. And I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Tell your friends. Look us up on social media, uh, The Sopranos Podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, we're so happy to be here for this episode. Um uh, denial, anger, acceptance, initial impressions, guys. What do you think? Similar to you, Chris, I think this was a the moment in the play. If if we're say we're using a the metaphor of like a, a single play, where I knew I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't leaving an intermission. Obviously, I wasn't tuning out. I wasn't just going to focus on X Y Z character because I like them. I was in it for the long haul. I don't know exactly why. Maybe we'll get into it more. And as as you, I don't know that it's necessarily as um, astounding in its impact as college, but the way that it lays out what the characters are going through, how they're reacting to the world around them and what's happening, um, it, it was a, uh, the, there were no more deal breakers I was in. So this episode to me of the first three is the saddest um, mm. or the has the most profound sense of melancholy. That's not to say it's not without humor, of course, it, just like, life itself it has humorous moments but um there is this um building sense of dread uh as jackie's condition worsens uh and tony is thinking about his feelings about jackie and about death and about his place in the world um and i thought it was still very enjoyable despite all these ruminations about melancholy um the episode's title of course is is you know uh, referring to the Kubler-Ross cycle of, of grief. And uh, I think they did a really interesting job uh, kind of fo- focusing in on different uh, structures within the episode that mirror some of that. Um, yes. You know, it's- well, one in, pa- one in particular, Jordan, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, I, I got to give Mark Saracini some credit, the writer here. Um, one thing I noticed again on this most recent viewing, talking about mirroring the, that denial, anger, acceptance, there are three therapy scenes in this episode, 
And each of them are those three stages. The first one, Tony's in denial, like, ah, oh, Jackie's going to beat this cancer. Like, he's got, he just has no idea. He's not accepting how bad it is. The second one, he gets angry and storms out. Um, and then the third scene is finally his acceptance, though his three therapy scenes, beautifully structured. Yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a really smart episode. That was my takeaway, especially on the rewatch for it. So. Yeah, absolutely. So we got a lot of things going on here. We have the uh, continuation of the Junior Comley Trucking Brendan Christopher saga. It's kind of uh, a loose thread in the background. It kind of um, loops around as the beginning and end of this episode. We'll get. I, I want to touch more on that. We do have Jackie dying, um, and uh, we have this interesting uh, Hasidic motel storyline that kind of comes in. Um, this is interesting for several reasons. This storyline. Um, one of which is that a lot of, there's a lot of curiosity. I mean, we, we've all seen Goodfellas and Godfather, but I think a lot of the average everyday people kind of have, don't have a clear picture of exactly what the mob does and how they make their living and what the blue collar moment to moment life is like for these guys. And this is kind of an interesting storyline for me in that regard, because it really shows how they get into a business and kind of, um, you know, attach themselves and, and, you know, as they say, uh, in the meeting at Satrials, uh, you know, once you get them in, you'll never get them out, you know? So, yeah. I mean, what, what kind of stood out to you guys, uh, in this episode? What, 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 what is hanging over your head with these, uh, various different plot threads? We also have, uh, um, Meadow studying for her, uh, SATs and, and, um, stressing out about that and trying to get speed from Christopher. Uh, and, uh, we also have this, a very interesting dynamic, uh, and, and I have a lot to say about this storyline actually, even though it's probably of the, the lowest stakes storyline of the episode, uh, but this Artie, Charmaine, Tony, Carmela dynamic, uh, is interesting to me because I am, uh, I'm not going to be very low key about this gents. I am a huge Artie Bucco fan. Uh, he is, he is absolutely my favorite non-gangster character (laughs) in the show. Uh, and, uh, I think like, while, uh, there's a lot of different things that are kind of subtly made aware in this episode, we're subtly made aware of in this episode. I think this plants a lot of interesting seeds for Tony and Artie's relationship, which, uh, uh, kind of take root later in the show. But, uh, thoughts on any of this, where do you guys want to start? I would start with the, um, piggybacking on what Jordan mentioned earlier about something sad and certainly a sense of dread um, that's brought up in this. And uh, the the Hasidic characters um, using Jewish uh, mythology and storytelling reference the Gollum, um, creating something that is supposed to do your work, but can grow out of your control. Mm. And they reflect that in the title that we've chosen for this episode, Frankenstein, a beast that lacks human feelings. And when Melfi mentions that at the end, for me, again, it introduced an aspect of the show that will, in its typical joyous, quirky, playful way, introduce these very compelling images of Tony um, and the other characters and what they're trying to do in the world um so for me the frankenstein imagery um is what brings me back and might also connect to how it struck jordan that this was a very smart episode yeah um so for me it was about that but also these other storylines they were interesting compelling rich i thought the characters grew um 
So, yeah. Uh, among Tony's most monstrous deeds in the series, forcing the Hasids to meet him of all his businesses at a pork store, uh, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, just kind of, it, it, I mean, it, it's funny, but it's also suggestive of the clash of cultures we're in for here because it's, I mean, I think that's, again, deliberate. He, he could have met these guys anywhere, but, you know, he's meeting these obvious Jews in front of the pork store. Nor does it, nor does it, um, uh, belie what Jordan said about how the episode is sad but again so many funny bits um mm. the when the uh Hasidic title the guy Titleman is trying to sort of brush Tony off give him a once off payment mm. and he says as the Talmud said Tony cuts him off he says I don't give a fuck what he says yeah and calls him ZZ Top <laughs> <laughs> um so uh what struck me about the Titleman story was um it's very much set up in a, a fable structure um, basically, uh, these people from another culture, in this case, the, the Hasidic culture, uh, have sought out Tony and Tony's men to solve a problem they're having, uh, very much in the way a, a, a fable character would be called upon a quest. Mm. And initially, they cannot solve the problem with Ariel. They cannot get him to give up, I think it's referred to as his get, right? He wants 50% yeah. of the business uh, if, if this all comes to pass. Um, but he proves too much for them he is culturally so riveted to his beliefs that he cannot escape them even to save his own life and i thought wow guys you're not you're not seeing that reflected back on yourselves at all how in this he is he's in it just as much as you are mm. and uh that was so interesting to watch wow. and to see how the hasidic culture was depicted as another um uh devout culture not just in terms of its religious aspect but in terms of the code He's right. got a code too, and hey, these codes conflict. So well, now Tony and Silvio even says, you know, Paul, if we don't kill this prick, we should put him to work. I think that just kind of speaks to, mm -hmm. to exactly what you're saying. Yeah, the only yeah, way they can appreciate it is the utilitarian. We could, that's we right. could get something out of it, right? Right, right. So there's this respect. So again, just like in this, you know, fable, uh, Tony has to seek out the advice of a sage, just as you would in a fable. He has to seek out a wizard. In this case, Hesh. Hesh, what do I do? Hesh mm. has some advice. You don't get involved with these people, period. You're supposed to circumvent this whole issue by not meddling in their affairs, but Tony is Tony. Tony meddles. Uh, right. So he presses it, his luck. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and contrarily to that, what's what's funny is about that is you get the mirroring um, from uh, uh, Hillel, who is his uh, who is uh, Titleman's son. He's like, don't get involved with these people. You'll never get them out. So it's like you kind of have this interesting, like both sides are saying, don't get involved with these extremists, yeah. you know? So, ultimately, when the fable is is through and Tony wants his, what he considers to be fair payment for the work he's done, but his work has violated Titleman's code because he was too violent and too aggressive, and now, of course, Titleman does not want to give him 25% of his business, and Tony insists upon it, Titleman refers to him as a golem, and Tony doesn't know what that is, of course, he's not familiar with the lore, and Titleman corrects it to Frankenstein. What's interesting in that jump, in that correction, is that really different things are implied when you say a golem versus when you say Frankenstein, and Titleman's actually more correct the second time. So a golem mm. is a creature brought about from clay uh, with special runic markings, and he's brought about to do your bidding. He serves one particular purpose. A Frankenstein is a monster brought about by someone who aspires to more than what becomes of the creation itself. And we're kind of left 
I think, uh, with this resonant moment of Frankenstein and Dr. Uh, Menfi uh, brings that up. Oh, sorry, Dr. Melfi brings that up again for us uh, later in the episode. Do, do you feel like this monster that is without feeling? And that uh, idea has such resonance into basically all future episodes. If Tony is Frankenstein's monster, then who or what has created him? And, mm. you know, in his singular purpose, what is his motivation to keep doing these brutal things that he is doing? When can he be satisfied? When can he be happy? When can the monster rest? Uh, these are really good questions. And Titleman is an early small character who recognizes exactly how dangerous Tony and men like Tony are. Uh, to paraphrase a favorite film, Tombstone, he has a great big hole right through the middle of him, and mm. he has to keep filling it with something. Yep. And, uh, you know, I love... Um... Just kind of a little visual. Again, nothing, no little detail on the show is by accident because there's too many of them to be coincidence. Uh, uh, you know, Tony has got his piece of the motel and he basically makes it clear to Titleman that, you know, hey, listen, we got you your get. We're here. This is it. We're partners. Fuck you. We're taking it. And he literally, he punches the wall next to Titleman and literally leaves his mark in that motel. He just mm -hmm. leaves a physical... Um, you know, impression on the on the actual building, like this is mine now. Uh, I just think that was a very cool moment, cool scene. Uh, and yeah, man, this this is this is a sad episode. It is. Uh, we 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 touched on this metaphor of the rotted out tree in one of the previous podcast episodes we've done. Um, about you know how this metaphor could kind of fit Tony or this whole Tony's whole empire really. Um, and now it's kind of coming out through this. Uh, through uh, this this painting that he sees and and you know Melfi's right. I mean I don't know. I didn't. Uh, there's a spooky element to the picture, but I, I I don't you know I didn't notice what Tony was seeing in it either. And I I kind of like I paused it and looked and you know it is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Well, and as as is I think often the case with psychodynamic therapy, uh, uh, it's it's a little different on this show as it, most things are. They're sped up for the for the purpose of storytelling, mm. but a therapist will not tell you what's happening. They'll reflect back to you what you're saying yeah, and try you, to help you, you discover. You have to have your own breakthroughs. What you're seeing. And yeah. it's Tony that's seeing something depressing in a rotted out tree in a spooky barn that there's nothing in it. Um, and to, to reflect on what Jordan said, I think it's so compelling. The, the, the progression from Gollum to Frankenstein, mm. because in part, and this happens particularly in the Artie storyline, um, Tony can't just be a monster. It's actually impossible. He has to be a social being. Um, and in the case with Artie, he has to sit and listen in these torturous medium close-up shots yeah. as Artie goes through his denial and his anger and his acceptance and the pain <laughs> of what he says is like losing a limb, losing yeah. his restaurant. And t Tony's saying, I'm sorry, Artie, yeah. as the audience reckons with the knowledge that he blew up the restaurant. Yeah. Um, and they and those scenes, and by design, I don't mean this in any way like I was sitting there bored, but these scenes with Artie just kind of lamenting his restaurant are long and torturous, like for TV scenes. It's like he's just going on, and he's so dour. And if, if Tony... 
I, I feel like Tony, get, he eventually explodes at Artie and says, shit, enough about your restaurant. Shut the fuck up about it, you depressing fucking jerk, and throws food, <laughs> and then Artie throws food at him in a great scene. Um, but, like, I think Tony would have reached that point even if he didn't have the guilt of blowing up the restaurant on him because Artie is just being so, like, it's like, you know, to quote something from later in the show without being too specific, Artie is really going about in pity for himself here. Hmm. And um, Tony is like, you know, he... he do you think there's legitimate guilt here? Is is Tony just having trouble confronting the reality of this? What do you think when it comes to the bombing of the restaurant? Does he? I think Tony and Artie have the one of the most unique relationships in the whole show. We're going to see more of this, but Tony and Artie have a relationship that is, uh, I mean, it's almost indescribable in its uniqueness for this show. Artie can speak to Tony in a way that. Nobody else can speak to Tony. And Tony does seem to me anyway to have a legitimate soft spot for Artie. And he puts up with stuff from Artie that he might not put up with from anyone else. I feel like if Paulie Walnuts threw a cold cut in Tony's face in the back of Satriales, he'd have a much different reaction than when Artie Bucco tosses a cold cut in his face. Sure. It's the it's the stakes. Uh, the stakes are lower with Artie. Um, he does not have to be well-respected by Artie. He does not have to have Artie really take orders from him. Uh, when he's with Artie, he's more more of a person, just like a regular person, like you mm. would be with a friend. Tony doesn't have a lot of uncomplicated relationships. Artie Bucco might be his least complicated relationship. Yeah, uh, he also, I, I mean, we, we can bring it back to the first episode. We might have not touched on it with too much specificity. Tony believed, and I assume still believes, that blowing up the restaurant was the best solution. <laughs> it came to him easily. He right. had the means and the manpower to do it. Um, it was preferable to the other scenario. Yep. And it got done. Who else could do it? Right. <laughs> I just love that look that, you know, like those medium close-ups on Tony when Artie is just like calling the plan stupid and like, who would blow up a perfectly good restaurant? Stupid. Just love that irony there. And, uh, this, <laughs> this, and it also, you know, it's a bit of foreshadowing this, this Tony blowing up the restaurant issue is not going away. You know, this wasn't like some silly plot thing to get us through the first episode. It's like this, uh, that, that has some hanging consequences that are, have yet to bear fruit. Well, to bring it back to, again, as Jordan mentioned, the question of who created this monster, mm. um, what creates the monster is moral idiocy. And there's characters throughout this show who have these huge moral blind spots and it's going to come back. It's going to bite them. Mm. So, um, let's talk a little bit about Carmela and Charmaine here. This is definitely a thread that happens throughout the episode. Um, again, it's not the highest stakes situation we have going on here. I mean, we have literal life and death things occurring in this episode and, and I want to tie things in at the end with this kind of profound sadness and is Tony a monster and a Frankenstein and all that. But, um, this this interesting exchange here, I think, uh, plays to a, a lot of what is going on between Artie and and Tony and and Charmaine and Carmela, and uh, w- w- this kind of like Carmela, very consciously or unconsciously, we can have that debate if you want, but just kind of lording her status over Charmaine, and uh, it, and and. Charmaine sees and feels enough of the look Carmela looking down her nose at her enough that she finally comes out and says, look, I slept with, with, with Tony in high school and I know who he is just as well as you know who he is. And I made my choice and 
I'm good with how things turned out. You know, Charmaine may not have the nice house and may not have the 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 the, the maid and may not have you know the ease of life in some regards that Tony and Carmela have, but her husband isn't Tony Soprano. Uh, any thoughts on this? Yeah, uh, what an interesting Charm- uh, character Charmaine is. I I love her in this episode. I love her in many future episodes, of course, as well. In this this one in particular, I feel terrible for her in yeah. this episode, but I also really hate her for what she does yeah. uh, at the end of the episode and imparting this information to Carmela. Um, I don't know if it's a measured response, but she lashes out uh, in a way that uh, creates so much more trouble uh, for Tony, uh, and, and it comes from a place of deep feeling for uh, Charmaine. Um yeah, I, I don't think to your to your point, Chris, you, you were asking, you don't know if it was intentional that Carmela was lording her status over her. I think more interestingly, I don't I don't think Carmela even considered it. Right. Uh, I, I don't think she even thought that she was displaying her status, but yeah. she was just being Carmela. But there's that shot of the beckoning hand, you know. Yeah, yeah. that yeah, uh that that Carmela uses to to beckon Charmaine to to bring more of the food or whatever she's asking for in that moment and to place your good friend so far below you in status. Uh it's it's amazing how incredibly callous Carmela is in that moment. Um and it reflects really poorly on her character more so than it does on Charmaine even by what Charmaine does at the end of the episode. Yeah. Um I agree and I think that as long as we're still in a bit of an introductory phase to The Sopranos, it's as good a time as any to note that these characters are much more passive-aggressive than other characters on TV, and I think they will be affected and driven to a greater and possibly more interesting degree by resentment. Yo, big time. Um, Hence the frustration that I share with Jordan about what Charmaine does and the particular tack that she takes with it, even though I, I do get where she's coming from. Yeah, I absolutely get where she's coming from. Um, well, but it will cause problems going forward. No one does that better than the Sopranos, where they get you feeling two different ways about the same thing. <laughs> it's <laughs> like you know, uh, there are many examples in the show of the right person getting killed for the wrong reasons. We'll get into that as we get there. Um, but uh, yeah, you know what's uh, what's most fascinating to me, and then uh, I want to move back a little bit to the into the Jackie April situation. Um, but what's what's most fascinating to me about this dynamic with Artie and Tony, as we'll as we'll see in future episodes, is there is a part of Artie that, and we we've seen it so far in the pilot, and then in this episode where he considers taking Tony's money to open up his restaurant, that wants to that that is jealous of Tony, and that uh, is kind of resentful of the fact that he's working stiff and Tony seems to have it so easy from where Artie is sitting in, in many ways. And, uh, you know, were it not for Charmaine, Artie probably we would have made a lot of horrible decisions in his life. I think Charmaine, as, as you know, kind of abrasive as she can be sometimes, Artie really needs her or else, you know, Artie probably would have been dead a long, a long time before the series even started. But uh, this idea that, like, Tony has slept with Charmaine, uh, you know, is kind of a, a subtle seed in the, in the idea that Tony gets whatever he wants and gets everything on his plate. And Artie is kind of shafted, you know? And, and, and so I think that that jealousy will, and, and that kind of dynamic will come into play again for Tony and Artie. Any more thoughts on this before we move on? 
No, I think that should stand on its own. Cool. Uh, yeah, so we have this situation with uh, Jackie dying. We have a couple scenes in the hospital bed. We meet, uh, for the first time, uh, one of my favorite characters in the show, uh, Rosalie April, played by the extremely talented Sharon Angela. Um She's great, and uh, we don't get too much of her here. But uh, uh, Rosalie is a uh, leaves leaves her mark on this series um, from 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 where I from where I stand. And um, these scenes with Jackie are really are really something, uh, and and it kind of follows the. I think there's three of them. It kind of follows a, a similar pattern, almost in 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 reverse of. Uh, Tony's therapy scenes there's like kind of like this initial scene where they're all kind of yucking it up and having a great time and it feels like business as usual they're talking about the 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 Hasidim but I don't believe him kind of you know that scene and then uh and then Tony brings in the nurse in the second scene and in the third scene Jackie is essentially already gone I mean he's just not there Tony's talking to a ghost thoughts on Jackie and how that situation kind of evolves um, my memory of seeing that for the first time is the scene where in particular, where Tony brings in the young woman who's dressed as a nurse and then (laughs) uh, reveals her uh, that she's not wearing anything underneath or wearing very little (laughs) underneath. And uh, then him um, (laughs) is one of the sweetest single scenes. I remember from the entire show, certainly up to that point in the show, it's the sweetest scene that I can recall. Um, almost immediately after that, again, maybe bringing it back to what Jordan mentioned about this feeling of dread, as if that scene was the ending of all that, I think the very next scene he describes the, quote, party to Melfi, and immediately it's going to go sour. I think he asks for her expertise and ends the scene with the the anger of the title. You don't know what the fuck. You don't know me. You don't know him. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Trees, ducks, what the fuck are you, Ranger Rick? (laughs) Right. Um, And from there, we have Jackie's deterioration. Um, So whatever was sweet in that scene reeled me in and dashed my hopes to the ground. Um, Well, and it's, it's, it's just a great dichotomy through this whole episode because the question being posed... By the Hasidic storyline, um, are you a monster? Are you a Frankenstein? Are you a thing incapable of human emotion? And yet every single plot that Tony is involved with outside of that storyline is filled with rich, deep, complex human emotion. It's, it's re- that's part of why it's so sad that he can still go through all of this and feel all of this and still have to question his own humanity. Sure. Well, the other half of that Frankenstein comparison is that um, Frankenstein is only treated as a monster. He does have a full breadth of human emotions, and that's what drives him on through that novel. Um, You know, it's interesting. Everything Tony tries to accomplish in Denial, Anger, Acceptance is essentially undone or done in a way that uh, leads us to failure. He thinks he has this thing with Brendan and Chris under control, and they're going to make restitution, and it's going to be okay. But as it turns out, it's it's not okay. He thinks he's going to be able to mm. solve this problem with uh, Titleman and, and the, the Hasidic folks in this episode, and um, it resolves, but not in the way it was supposed to. And he must act as a monster to resolve it appropriately. Um, mm. He thinks that maybe his friend is going to be okay, uh, but he can't fix him. Um you know, it's 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 Tony really trying to beat at a world that is often unforgiving. Um, 
it, it does. It, there is this pervasive sense of dread or melancholy that that Tony, no matter what he does, can't always affect the outcome of what is maybe destined to happen. We can save conversations of destiny for other episodes where they might be more appropriate. But, um, you know, we see Tony really struggling with his reality and his inability to change some things. And who who um, can't empathize with that? I mean, uh, I I, yeah. I think everyone here, and certainly most of the people listening to this, have had to go through the experience of watching something horrible happen to somebody you care about, and just not in in your powerless because it's 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 just part of life. And you know, just watching this guy who is this we're led to believe um, was this kind of dynamic boss and good friend to Tony just wither away and and. And we kind of get a little sense in the first scene of what Jackie may have been like as a boss, and then it just kind of by the last scene, it's just you know you're 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 in the kind of mental space where it's like I hope he goes soon because he's he's just not there's no quality of life. Absolutely, I think this also um, brings up another element of The Sopranos that's very important and particular. I think um, there's the the understanding that losing someone close to you, a good friend, a loved one, a family member is so horrible. But for me, very often, if not more often than not, the reasons that I actually empathize with Tony are maybe immoral or amoral. Hmm. I empathize with Tony often because he has to live a lie. Because he has to be more than one thing at once. Because I think to some degree, everybody gets that. You've all been in a situation where you know X, Y, Z is the real deal and somebody's communicating to you that they have another reality and you, for whatever reason, feel that you can't expose that or you'll expose yourself. Um, And the way that Tony does that, the way that he has to do that, the way he struggles with it, the way that he sometimes is so charmingly effective at it, I actually admire even though, of course, it's so horrible. (laughs) Um, So that that brings up... um, a lot for me, um, though different things that I'm seeing him do, lying to Artie, but also dealing with the death, the the withering away of a good friend. Yep. Yeah, very true. Um, shifting gears a little bit here as we kind of speed toward the end of uh, our episode, just a couple quick things I want to touch touch down on briefly. A little mob trivia. Um, the uh, role of Titleman, I'm sure you guys noticed, but just for anyone out there who doesn't know, is played by Chuck Lowe, who is infamous in his role as Maury from Goodfellas. <laughs> Maury's wigs don't come off, even under hurricane winds. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, it's, it's kind of cool. Definitely not the last uh, iconic Goodfellas actor we're going to see in this show. Um, Quickly, this this uh, before we get into the final, I want to talk about this last sequence of the show, this uh, kind of montage we get at the end. I think there's a lot of great stuff going on there. Um, but just two things quickly. One, this, uh, I mean, I root for Chris. Chris Moltisanti is one of my favorite characters in the show. Um, and uh, man, oh man, you just you just don't give meth to the boss's daughter. <laughs> What's fun about this is we don't get scenes between between Chris and Meadow, but like I, I feel like they had a really interesting chemistry in this in this episode. Like mm-hmm. you can tell there was history there, and that they were kind of like there's a kinship. But uh, at the same time, it's like man, oh man, Chris, what a boneheaded decision. Um. <laughs> well, right. I mean, it's so true. But but I guess also it's true that uh, life is absurd tragedy. 
he basically gets away with it. He thinks he's getting mock executed for it. It has nothing to do with that. Mm. Nobody ever finds out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Another very important scene uh, here, and, and just to quickly talk about the kind of um, bookends here on this episode, that we start off with uh, Tony, uh, with Chris and Brendan returning the truck to Comley, and then this very funny scene between Junior and Mikey Palmisi, the take it easy, we're not making a Western scene, uh, where Mikey is like amping him up, you don't fuck with Junior Soprano kind of thing, uh, you know, just such a turd, this guy. Um, and then... The, that that thread of like calmly trucking and junior uh, is not really touched so much. There's like a brief moment where Mikey Palmis uh, has some kind of crossover with the guys as they're coming in to visit Jackie, and he's just like talking. To, I love that moment where Rosalie smacks him in the back of the head for talking about having air in the line or whatever. <laughs> um, well, after he leaves, I think um, Jackie says something to the respect of he's a nice guy, but he's like the grim fucking Reaper. Remember, grim fucking Reaper and Mikey Palmisi will come back to that. Oh, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, that wasn't a throwaway line. Um, yeah, but, uh, so, um, but then we come, the, the, then, then the, that, that thread is largely untouched until this very critical scene. Uh, and I mean, in the larger narrative sense between Livia and Junior, and we get a little bit of, of more of them since the first episode. And, uh, uh, wow. I mean, there's two ways to look at it as we go forward with Livia and Junior. One is that, I, I, I guess, okay, so you have to wrestle with the degree at which Livia is pulling the strings here, right? Because Junior is very insecure. He's stating like he, you know, he has a reputation to uphold. How long before I have to do something? And Livia just masterfully lays it out like this felony kid. I don't know him. But this goes into the story about Christopher putting up her storm windows. What do you make of this Livia Jr. scene? Livia is the master manipulator in the family, and uh, she fills the vacuum left behind by Tony's father. Mm. And even though Jr. likes to play the role of the big man, we see in the way that he consults her, he's really looking to her for strength. This is the same kind of approval and validation that Tony is always seeking from Livia, but usually gets less effectively because he's her son and not her uh, deceased husband's brother. Um, essentially only kind of half meaning it she's the one that orders this hit on brendan um and uh you know uh, again brendan is is one of many who are sacrificed in the name of chris Maltesanti. we can get into that in another uh episode perhaps but um hmm. yeah livia in many ways she, she represents the justice of the old world which junior is fanatical about He's having these feelings already, but he needs them confirmed by her, by a strong woman, by uh, the same woman that kind of ran his brother. Um, we'll see so much more in flashbacks in coming seasons and things like that, but um, uh, Livia is the one that really talks the talk uh, in a way that no one else is. And now that Jackie is dying and dead by the end of the episode, she's the last one left that seems to have that unspoken authority right i i mean there's no question i think among the three here maybe maybe there's some folks who debate about this but there's no doubt livia knows exactly what she's doing when she says this to him this way right of course Th uh, there's no ambiguity there she knows she's setting up brendan's going down and christopher's going to get a quote-unquote talking to what do you think paul um could be i i would argue it doesn't matter Sure. Uh, frankly, I think um, I don't want to. Again, I know we're we're kind of creating a spoiler-free zone, but later in the series, when 
issues of um, dementia and losing your memory are dealt with more head on. Tony will ask another character, why can't you remember something good? Mm. Livia is very likely an undiagnosed borderline personality disorder. This is what she can do. She can't have any real connections. It seems she can manipulate people to torture one another in some sort of weird funhouse world. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, and we're talking about creating monsters here. Mm. So, well, and going back to Jordan's question is who created the main monster in our series? And, you know, Johnny boy is no longer with us, but this room is certainly too, uh, potential Dr. Frankenstein's here. Um, going into this last sequence, I just want to point out, I love this ending montage where you have this beautiful choir music over the insidious underbelly of, of what's going on. Uh, it's, it's quintessential Sopranos and, and it's also, there's a lot of homage to the Godfather in this little thing. It's like, you got kind of like the, the, the bullet through the eye, the Mo green, right? You got, uh, beautiful music happening while murder and violence is, is occurring elsewhere, uh, in this kind of, and there's something almost kind of holy to it. I think Meadows in Catholic school, right? I mean, there's like a, I think so. Yeah. So, so, but, but, but either way, you know, um, Chris, is there a significance to being shot through the eye? Is there a, uh, is that something other than just a Godfather reference? So they, they, they talk about this actually in the next episode uh, a little bit. There's like a little bit of actual in character dialogue about what it means to get a bullet through the eye that the idea that Mo Green's eyes were too big for his stomach, he got greedy. Um, and then, and then I think one of the other characters, I think Paulie, or somebody replies back. Oh, that's just how Coppola framed the shot. There is some, <laughs> there is something um, interesting about the, the Sopranos and these good gang. The good gangster movies do is that they make the violence memorable or unique in some way, other than just being blood for blood's sake, right? All of the kills and murders and violence in the Sopranos has a very special kind of memorable element to it that makes it a step above just your average kind of gangster thing, you know. Um, but yeah, we got Chris getting dragged out. We got this mock execution, and then we have the Brendan Falone hit. Um, when I think of season one Uncle Junior and the menacing Uncle Junior, I always come back to this shot of him just watching the hit in the dark, and you just kind of have like the glare of his glasses and his kind of powerful smirk as he walks away behind uh, Mikey Palmisi. And that line, hijack by Jack, I mean, it just gives me chills every time. Yep, I think, and just as uh, as Jordan pointed out, the manipulation um, inherent in the scene with Livia and Junior will then guide us throughout much of what happens with Livia throughout this season. And then this sequence with its godfather homage will guide us to so many other moments where these characters regularly reference um, the cultural linchpins of their own world, the godfather, goodfellas. Um, and uh, as I understand it, now a lot of Jersey gangsters really like the Sopranos. Mm. They really like the vibe that it brings. They love the characters. They love the world. I remember reading an article when the Sopranos was still on the air that there's hours of wiretaps that the FBI had at the time that were Jersey mob guys, like talking, like calling each other on Sunday nights after the Sopranos, like talking about what <laughs> happened. <laughs> I think that's really funny. So yeah, denial, anger, acceptance, fucking awesome episode. Uh, very, I love that we, we, I, we really got touched on the melancholy and this was definitely, yeah, you're right. Jordan, the saddest of the three episodes we've got so far. And ultimately I, the Sopranos is a very, goes to some really dark and sad places. Um, you know, uh, James Gandolfini by the end of it was ready to to 
to stop doing the show because it was just like, you know, it's, it's, it's fucking depressing to live in this universe as much, you know, we were able to visit it, but like, I can't imagine living here in, in this, um, there's an episode coming up, uh, in season three too, where even the director told David Chase, like, oh my God, like there's this script is just makes me feel awful. Um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah. So, I mean, this is a sign of things to come. The show really goes to some deep places, but that's part of what makes it so, so fascinating. Final thoughts on this episode, guys. For me, this is where the show begins in earnest. Yeah. Yeah. This, this show leaves the, the legacy, uh, in terms of, um, you know, filling, uh, the position that Jackie leaves behind, uh, in terms of, uh, answering for, uh, crimes committed uh foreseeing that that justice is dealt with in a particular way uh it it leaves us with a lot of questions a lot of uncertainty a lot of the things that tony himself is already feeling where do i go from here where does the where does the family go next uh it leaves christopher in an interesting position um it really just raises the series to a new level of potential energy in terms of what what could happen next The, the the king is dead anything could happen yep and uh with that I think that uh, is a great way to wrap this up. Thank you guys for listening to uh, The Sopranos Podcast. I'm Chris D'Amato. Paul Mancini. And Jordan Hugh. And uh, we will be back to discuss episode four, Meadowlands. Thank you so much. This has been fun, guys. (laughs) 